0: Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com.
1: This is Nashville. I'm Andrea Tudhope, executive producer and director of This Is Nashville, taking the wheel today for our host, Khaleel Colona. As we kick off 2023, we want to reflect on where we've been. For this special episode, I'm going to take you back through some of the best stories This Is Nashville brought you in 2022. Now, from the start, we wanted our show to deliver you a variety of voices and perspectives in a fresh and dynamic way. Most of all, we set out to meet you, our community, where you are. In the winter, we met you at the Downtown Bus Hub, the night that a free bus line started running to and from Nashville's new cold-weather overflow shelter.
2: It's a blessing that they have this thing like this here.
1: We were there when street chaplain Lisa Cook delivered propane to her friend Angie at a campsite in East Nashville. Thought I'd save you
3: some steps. So how long did that tank last you? You know, I tried to time it, but I've used it so much because it's been so cold.
1: And when Tammy and Ray were trudging through the long process to Section 8 housing. I will say, this is just to get on a list to be considered for Section 8.
2: Just hearing me say that just, like, took hope out of me. I mean, yeah, like, I'm still gonna be out here a while, probably, like. Nearly
1: a year later, Tammy and Ray are still waiting for permanent housing. In the spring, we celebrated the Kurdish New Year, Nowruz, with you in Lebanon.
4: It's something very special to us, so we get very happy when this uh, holiday comes.
1: I you, And soon after, Ramadan, the first in the U.S. for Nunaşvilians, Russia, and Zainab. Half an hour before sunset, Russia is frying meat with one hand and stirring the mulukhiya with the other.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: We picked through the bins at the Goodwill Outlet on Cockrell Bend.
3: So right now we got people ripping and roaring through boxes of clothes. I wish they had like a hot and ready sign.
1: Got nostalgic with some gaming at Rivergate Mall.
5: For me, a Gen Xer. This is some kind of heaven. Does this man have a
3: duck? You have a duck. duck. Okay.
5: Picked eggs at Hennessy Farms. (laughs) Guinea
6: eggs are like a peach color, and then you have some that are just this
1: deep brown, and they're so gorgeous. And navigated a busy intersection in Murfreesboro with Quinn Howard, who is blind, to get a better sense of what it's like for him getting around this city every day. I can feel the texture with my feet. So
7: I would um, find this, reorient myself with, okay, am I keeping straight here or am I turning right or left? We'll
1: keep going. This is Nashville. When we first started dreaming this up, we set a goal to keep in touch with the people we meet along the way. So through it all, we've taken the time to go back. I want to let you in on what I mean by this. Before a launch last spring, our senior producer, Steve Harouche took a walk through North Nashville with artist Simone Boyd. She talked about the neighborhood, the challenges of gentrification, the lack of investment from the city. She also talked about big plans she had to install murals in Elizabeth Park, honoring five women, one of whom is Curly Magruder.
6: Mrs. Magruder's legacy is not very visible. Not many people know about her. So, Mr. Kwame Lillard, and I'm going to try not to cry about this, but when I called Mr. Lillard to ask him to tell me stories, what do you know about her? He's like, what are you doing? Come, Come to my office. Come to my office. He wrote a check for $300 to support this mosaic.
1: That's Simone months later at the dedication ceremony she held at Elizabeth Park to unveil those murals for these women who were pillars of this community. And that day in May, we were there to honor the legacy of the women in the murals and meet their descendants.
6: How do we move forward? I think they show us the way. Yeah. We care for each other. We make popsicles if we can. <laughs> we give a little more to people who have a little less. We do the simple things, and that's what's going to turn this thing around for us, y'all.
1: When we first started spending time on this, we didn't know it would lead to a story, and that was OK. But because we put in that time, the descendants agreed to come onto our show to share their memories. There's a lot of time and care that goes into the stories we tell on This is Nashville, because really, more than scoring the story and meeting a deadline, we want to earn trust first, even if that means not getting a story right away or not getting the story we thought we might. In the fall, This is Nashville producer Rose Gilbert found a story she wasn't looking for, While sitting on a porch with Patricia Kelly Adams, reminiscing about the first Black-founded county fair in the country, born right here in Middle Tennessee.
2: You could just close your eyes and imagine everybody cooking that was cooking out there and fast wheel going, people dancing, having a good time. Ain't nobody in no hurry. They's going to start taking stuff down and we still out there. They probably done took the fast wheel down. we still out there, one or two in the morning. It was just something to behold. And it'll never be nothing like the Galton Old Negro Fair again, ever. Nowhere.
1: It was on that porch that Patricia told Rose about her church in Hendersonville.
8: Mine's a 150 year old church. Oh, wow. They built the church on the
2: same rock that the slaves used to worship. They had to come down on the rock. I'm in Hendersonville, St. John in Hendersonville.
1: Well, that day, Rose made Patricia a promise she'd meet her at this church for a Sunday service. A few months later, she did, and brought you this story.
7: Yes, it's built on a rock. It is built on a
9: rock. That's church deacon Dr. Julius Brinkley. St. John Missionary Baptist Church is literally built on a rock, but he says it's also spiritual.
7: A rock is solid. It sustains. And it represents
9: strength. And we try to represent all of those qualities. The church is tucked away in some woods just off New Shackle Island Road and across from Drake's Creek. It's very shallow now. But of course, when I was a little boy, it seemed
7: like it was to the roof. You know what I mean?
9: Julius was baptized in Drake's Creek as a child 60 years ago, so it holds a special place in his memory. Though that memory wasn't always special. Actually, I was afraid because I was afraid
7: of water. You know, this preacher is going to drown me, you know. But as I got older, it was something that I could look back and appreciate, you know. And I treasure it forever.
9: A Drake's Creek baptism is a tradition that stretches back generations.
7: Forever. I mean, forever. Literally, forever.
9: Or at least back before emancipation, when this land was part of the Hunter Plantation. The people who were enslaved here used this very spot to worship and perform baptisms. Back then, there was no building, just the rock and the creek. Then, in 1891, seven men, including Julius's grandfather, bought the land from the Hunter family for $150 and built a church.
7: And we decided to name it St. John Missionary Baptist
9: Church. St. John's has been through a lot since then, explains head pastor Reverend Robert Earl Bell. During the Jim Crow era, he says it was targeted for being a historically black church.
8: They burned it twice, and then they built the last one out of block. It was a block building when I came here, 38 years ago, because the two previous buildings had been burned.
9: But they kept rebuilding, on the same site, on the same rock, by that same stretch of creek. The quaint white building you see today is a 21st century renovation, complete with an indoor baptistry and stained glass windows. But Reverend Bell has tried to keep some of the history intact. As he shows me around, he points to a framed document hanging on the wall.
8: That's the actual deed for the land when they purchased it. This is the actual confirmation. That meant
9: a lot, knowing
8: when it first started, and that's why it's important that I put the uh, two different plaques out in the vestibule so people could know where they came from.
9: Even still, that legacy isn't necessarily common knowledge among the congregation, especially its younger members. I had never known that the church had been burned down. Kyra Joy is 12. She's been coming here with her grandmother since she was born. She overheard me talking with the Reverend and tells me it made her feel... Surprised. It made me feel like confused and lost because I've been like so behind on church history. But Kyra Joy is doing her own part to keep this church and its legacy alive. She always plays a role in the adjunct play, and she likes to sing in the youth choir. There's like church songs, old church songs that I know by word because I've been here for so long.
7: Ten o'clock, let's get started.
9: On a Sunday morning, I'm sitting in a pew with Patricia Kelly Adams, who I met back in Gallatin. I promised her I'd go to church with her. And say, speak, Lord, speak, Lord to thy servant. To thy servant. As the pews begin to fill in, Patricia points out relatives, church officials, and new babies. On stage, the youth choir assembles. It's hard not to feel the sense of life and hope here, even for a church that's been around so long and been through so much. After the service, Julia Sprinkley tells me that sense of life is real. In fact, St. John's has seen a steady flow of new members. Well, I mean, we're
7: constantly making progress. We're not stagnant, we're not. We're making progress. Through growth of the church, more members are joining as a result of the overspill of population in Nashville. And, uh, And a lot of the original members, particularly the young ones, they're returning back and rejoining the church.
1: We have to take a short break. When we come back, I'll show you how curiosity led the way for us in 2022.
7: See how they come. They know that this is banana time. You you know, if you are uh, whistling, that means they know that uh, they got some bananas uh, through some guests.
1: Don't go away. This is Nashville. I'm Andrea Tudhope, and this is Nashville. Before we launched this daily show for WPLN, we talked a lot about how to sound different. And hey, I do think this dope theme music we commissioned from LaRange and Namir Blade does help us get there. But you know what I mean, there's a sound, a style that comes to mind when you think public radio talk show. Well, our sound, we decided, would be more dynamic and fresh, full of lived experience, and the sounds of living that experience in our city and region up close. And in 2022, we let curiosity lead the way. Lakshmi, come on! It's what led us to the Goshala Cow Sanctuary in Memphis, one of just a few in the country.
7: See how they come. They know that this is banana time. You, you know, if you are uh, you know, whistling, that means they know that uh, they got some bananas uh, through some guests.
1: It also led us to Music City Leather and the workshop of cowboy bootmaker Wes Shugart, where we learned there are 350 steps that go into making a cowboy boot by hand. This is a 1931 sole stitcher. Her name is Edith. So, it should come as no surprise to you that curiosity led producer Tasha A.F. Lemley to post up late into the night near the Jefferson Street Bridge to do some bird watching. Yes, okay. So, after the city removed the trees around the Nashville Symphony, tens of thousands of birds that roosted there were displaced. Last July for This Is Nashville, Tasha took a sunset stroll with bird biologist Melinda Welton to see where the infamous purple martins went. It's a bit like chaotic
4: smoke. Then they get lower and lower until they start going into the trees. But hopefully tonight we'll see them at a great distance in the sky before they start coming into the trees. That's really exciting. It is.
5: (laughs) Yeah. It can be a real spectacle, which I'm sure you know if you love the symphony.
4: Yeah, Nashville has hosted a very large purple martin roost for um, oh well over 10 years. Melinda's one of
5: a handful of locals keeping tabs as the purple martins look for their next roost.
4: And we're gonna watch to make sure that what's been done is enough to encourage the birds to find another place to roost before they go to the upper Amazon. She says one of those new roosts, is out near the Jefferson Street Bridge. That's where
5: we're waiting for them to land for the evening.
4: Most of the birds start coming in about 8.20, and then uh, they're mostly all in the roost by 8.40 when it's getting dark.
5: 8.16, any minute now. We're hoping to see them come in from afar, like a chaotic cloud. (laughs) 8.20 comes and goes. No birds. Melinda stares into her binoculars. She's looking in all directions.
4: I have no idea what may have happened. Melinda strains
5: to hear or see any birds at all in the area. She finally sees a few.
4: I think those, those are Martins. Silent. How curious. Well, we're witnessing something that has not been observed in Nashville before.
5: Well, the sun is set. We're at 840. They should be settled into bed for the night. It looks to be a bust, if not a melancholy mystery. Before we go, I suggest listening under the trees just to hear if anyone may have slipped in under our watch. And right as we step under the canopy, in come hundreds of martins.
4: And that's the spectacle you were hoping to see. You see, they fly over the trees, they'll swoop around, and then they'll settle into the trees. Over the next 20 minutes, birds keep
5: coming in. Sometimes a couple dozen at a time, sometimes a couple hundred, all in the dark. It's not wise to be so awestruck that I stare up with my mouth open. (laughs) I should probably be very excited with a closed mouth.
4: All the roosts that I've watched in Nashville, that was the most
1: curious display I've seen. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm executive producer Andrea Tudhope. For this special episode, I'm taking you back through some of the best stories we brought you in 2022. This next one tells the story of how the saber-toothed tiger came to be the inspiration for the Nashville Predators logo and name. I'll let our producer, Rose Gilbert, take it from here. Okay, and the name of research, I have to start by
9: going to a game, right? It's Tuesday night, and Bridgestone Arena is tapped. (laughs) Preds fans are notorious for being loud. They love their team, and the snarling saber-toothed cat that represents them. And that cat is everywhere. There's Nash, the mascot, who is a whole lot less intimidating than the logo. Fans actually used to throw real catfish onto the rink that Nash would sometimes ride out onto the ice to collect. But that's another story. There's the giant saber-toothed cat head with glowing eyes that descends onto the ice at the beginning of every game. And then there's the growling sound effects that ring throughout the arena after each Pred's goal. Finally, there's the fang fingers. During every power play, intense horror movie-style music plays. And fans raise and lower two curled fingers towards the ice, like the cat's iconic fangs clamping down on its prey. It's a sight to see. But do the fans know where their team's name and logo comes from?
3: No idea, no idea. Um, I would assume an animal. I know a lot of, especially kids, have become fans of the Predators just because of the
7: logo and because of Nash. <laughs> lots of kids and lots of adults too. <laughs>
9: That's Melvin Pulse. He and his wife, Lisa, are longtime season ticket holders. Lisa says she's heard the story.
6: Well, when they were making, building the arena, Uh, And they were digging the foundation. They found a saber-toothed tiger skull underneath the building. And they, at the time, were taking um, suggestions for the names of the team. And so, saber-toothed tiger is a predator. And so they made the logo the skull, and they called them the Predators.
9: She's almost right. It's true. The Preds logo is inspired by a real saber-toothed tiger that once roamed our downtown streets, long before there were even streets at all. To tell the story of the Nashville Predator, We're going to take a little journey back in time, all the way back to the Ice Age. Let's start just a few blocks away from Bridgestone Arena at the UBS Tower on 3rd Avenue. In the basement of the parking garage, smack dab in the middle of spot number 34, there's a heavy metal hatch. You'd never know by looking at it, but just under this hatch is the entrance to a cave where the fossil of the original Nashville Predator was first discovered back in 1971. That summer, construction crews were hard at work downtown, blasting away tons of solid limestone to lay the foundation for what would later become the UBS Tower. They were about three-quarters of the way done when construction ground to a sudden halt after a worker noticed a strange-looking white object in the debris.
8: That's That's the tooth that started it all, the saber tooth.
9: John Dowd was a part of the group of amateur archaeologists called in to excavate the site. In a uniquely Nashville turn of events, John says that the group's president, Bob Ferguson, was out fundraising with country music stars when he got the call.
8: Bob Ferguson had been at Johnny Cash's house, and uh, Johnny Cash had wrote him a check for $10,000 to help our organization out.
9: Construction had already damaged and mixed up a lot of the findings, but John and his colleagues still managed to recover a partial saber-toothed cat skeleton including one of its long, namesake fangs.
8: Well, we had no idea what was there. We just thought it was more animal bones and just a common thing. But when we seen that it was early, there was some real early stuff in there. It, we, we got excited about it.
9: John doesn't really follow hockey. He had no idea the predators had been inspired by the fossils he helped uncover until they announced the name and logo to the public in 1997. Okay. So that's where the team got the idea. But I was still curious. What was the Nashville predator like when it was alive? To find out, I met with Vanderbilt paleontologist Dr. Larissa DeSantis. First things first, this was a big animal.
1: So we're talking bigger than an African lion. The fossil
9: found in the cave under the UBS tower were a specific species called Smilodon fatalis. Smilodon refers to the shape of their saber-like teeth, and fatalis means deadly which they were. Those big curved fangs?
1: Not just for show. So the purpose of the large saber is basically to uh, let the prey bleed out very quickly. And so you've got kind of a sharp edge on both sides. And so you can, if you just want to feel along there, there's very minor serrations, if any. Larissa studies a
9: ton of different kinds of ancient animals, but
1: she has a soft spot for saber tooths Sometimes they get a bad rap for being, you know, fierce apex predators and, and killing prey, which they have to do to eat. Uh, but in fact, these may have been, you know, compassionate kitty cats.
9: Today, the fossils are on display at the guest center in Bridgestone Arena. Or so we thought. The thing on display is actually a replica from an entirely different Smilodon fatalis skull found way out in California. Turns out, the original went missing sometime before 1990, after the building was bought by a new owner. To find out what happened, I paid a visit to the Tennessee Division of Archaeology, where I found an archaeologist with a particular interest in this case.
3: So I actually worked for the Preds on the ice crew for a couple years there in the late 2000s. Um, Okay, how did
9: that happen? Okay, how did that happen? (laughs) Yes, you heard that right. Longtime Preds fan, first time fossil detective, Aaron Dieterwolf.
3: So over the years, that display got reorganized a couple of times as the bank was, was bought and sold to different organizations. And at a certain point, the fang disappears off display.
9: Rumor has it the fang was sent to the Smithsonian or maybe the Carnegie?
3: In researching this site in the last two or three years, I ran down all of those leads that I could and none of those institutions have any record of ever getting a transfer of that fang. So it has disappeared. We do not know where the predator fang is today.
9: Aaron has his own theories about where it might have ended up.
3: There was an opportunity and the fang walked away.
9: We may never know, but we do know one thing. The Nashville predator lives on in Bridgestone Arena, not far from where it roamed 10,000 years ago.
1: Now, sometimes our curiosities led to more somber moments. About an hour northeast of Nashville, there's a lush green nature preserve. You might not know it from looking at it, but it's a burial ground. In fact, Larkspur is the only conservation burial ground in Tennessee and one of only about a dozen in the country. Here, you can choose to be buried in a natural way, a process that is something of a ritual for the family and friends one that starts at the bottom of a steep hill. Last year for This Is Nashville, freelancer Tasha AF Lumley got to walk through this process with one man saying goodbye to his son.
5: Jason Zimmerman was just 42 when he died. His dad, Mark, is here to say goodbye.
8: He is a wonderful man. He was wonderful. He was a great guy. What was he like? Oh, man. He is full of life, full of beans,
5: you know. I start the hike uphill to Jason's burial site, and it's some work getting to the top. John Christian Pfeiffer is with me. He's the executive director of Larkspur Conservation. Growing up on a farm in western Tennessee, he was fascinated with nature, and he actually had a little cemetery where he'd bury family pets when they died, and this included grasshoppers he'd find. He says he'd wrap them with a shroud made of leaves, and he'd mark the spot with a fork from the kitchen drawer.
3: In seventh grade, I told my parents I wanted to be a mortician, not fully understanding the weight of what what that work was.
5: He says he wants to honor a life's existence, and he feels natural burial does that. There's something about being so in tune with the earth. And as we're walking up the trail, he's smoothing out tire prints with his feet. When something catches his eye, of course he picks it up.
3: It's a crinoid. A 320 million year old sea creature from this land, when this land was covered by a shallow. Sea. Is that all? Nah, that's all.
5: <laughs> a baby crinoid.
3: A baby crinoid. I just have a tendency of picking them up when I see them, and may give it to the father today. May pop it back down on the on the ground.
5: <sighs> At the burial site. Jason is there, wrapped in a cream-colored shroud that John Christian made himself. Just this morning before we arrived, he wrapped Jason's body. Cloth straps, they secure him to a pine platform with sprigs of evergreen trees supporting his lower back and under his knees. And roses are tucked into the cloth folds near his chest.
3: It's more like we're swaddling an adult body in a way. I guess it harkens back to those leaves that I used on grasshoppers when I was a kid. You just create a design that looks uh, looks appropriate and beautiful and simple and that does what it's intended to do.
5: We're gathered around Jason's body. A few family members joined by FaceTime. Mark, Jason's dad, though, is the only family member here in person. He peers down at his son.
2: Okay.
8: I guess he ain't getting up. Doggone it. True to form, he ain't doing nothing (laughs) that he don't want to do.
5: The plot has been custom dug for his height. The edges have been smoothed by hand and a bed of leaves, twigs, pine needles, and flower petals are placed at the bottom. John Christian says it reminds him of the way a mother bird prepares her nest to receive something special. With his help, and a couple others, Mark lowers Jason into his grave by rope.
3: Slowly, slowly, slowly.
5: Then everyone takes a turn with shovels, starting with the soil that came out last and ending with the topsoil, we bury Jason.
8: Yeah, this is a hands-on, rather than everybody standing there in their overcoats and you know, this is hands-on, yeah you get to participate in covering the body, you know, yeah.
7: Play some, uh,
8: play some Monkey Man by the Stones after this.
5: It takes about an hour. Mark finishes by covering the plot with pine needles and flower petals. We sip hot cocoa, talk a bit about Jason, and look at a childhood photo until Mark's ready to walk back down the hill.
8: We ain't supposed to be planting our kids. Yeah, I mean, uh, since he has to go, this is the best way. You know, at least he's giving back, and I feel that's important.
5: In a quiet moment, sitting up on a picnic table in a meadow not too far away from Jason's space, I asked John Christian what he thinks happens to us after we die. You think we're okay after we leave or after we're out of our shell?
3: I think we're okay I think we're okay after we die whatever is on the other side and whatever it looks like whether that's streets of gold and living above the clouds or that that's our energy dancing through the grasses and um, coming up with the weeds I can tell you one thing. When I die and I'm buried here at Larkspur and my body starts returning to the soil and goes up through the roots of these plants, this stalk of ironweed and comes out as pollen on the tip of that flower and rides a bumblebee, that's gonna be pretty neat.
1: We have to take a short break. When we come back, we've got more of our best stories from 2022. So don't go away. This is Nashville. I'm Andrea Tudhope, and this is Nashville. It's no secret that Nashville is an ever-changing place. Like the city itself, This is Nashville is always evolving. Our show is a journey into the identity of our town. And that identity is not a fixed mark, to be sure. But there are fixtures of it all around us, even as they fade. So as much as we set out to follow our curiosities to discover something new in 2022, we also wanted to center the old, sometimes in a new light, other times just as-is. And that meant honoring legacy. Like hot chicken, Last June, we hosted hot chicken royalty in our studios, Ms. Andre Prince of Prince's.
9: This chicken started out of an emotion.
1: And Ms. Dolly Matthews from Bolton's. We even got to see up close how Ms. Dolly makes her hot chicken.
6: The dry rub is a spicy dry rub, consisted of different spices, which is a secret which I can't say. If I told you it wouldn't be a secret. <laughs> Love, peace, joy, and happiness is our secret up in
1: here. There are also legacies that may be newer to Nashville, but lay that same foundation, making Nashville what it is and what it's becoming. Ebis Tahirian runs one such institution. It's a rug shop on Whitebridge Pike. Over the summer, we sent This Is Nashville intern, Doreen Chernecki, to learn more about his legacy.
0: There's early afternoon natural light beaming in, and the smell of mung bean soup hangs in the air. It feels like I've just walked into the living room of a Middle Eastern household. Except there are hundreds of rugs, some rolled and off to the side, some displayed on the nice hardwood floor.
2: And then that one, it was made around 1890, 1900. That's the for Gian Sorapi, and this is in excellent condition.
0: He points to a rug hanging in the back. It's a deep, dark red, with flowers made of more colors than I notice at first glance. Green, brown, orange and cream.
2: The color combination, as you see, is magnificent. and uh, uh, the size most of these rugs are very unusual. This is around nine by 17 feet, wow. which you don't see that many.
0: How much would
2: it cost? This one probably costs about twenty-seven dollars.
0: His shop may be full of rugs, but I have to wonder what his home looks like.
2: Uh, I don't have more room to put rugs. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, it depends. Really, in the living room there is three rugs. In the dining room there is two rugs, one on the table, one under the table. And there's a bunch in the closet. There's a bunch in the chest.
0: Abbas is seventy-six. And he's been here almost his whole life. He came for college and finished his studies at MTSU. His father wanted him to teach English, but Abbas wanted to follow in his father's footsteps and open his own rug store.
2: Most of the Iranians, they they grew up with rugs because their homes is full of rugs and they always get to know it somehow. And some they show more interest and some they don't, you know. I was always interested. In, in, in the art of rug making.
0: So that's what he pursued.
2: I started the business from nothing actually, very little. I started the cleaning and repair and, and I knew some about how to repair the rugs, how to clean them. So that's how we started. And then I got more in, interested in antique rugs and that's where you see all these rugs come.
0: There's actually a lot that goes into the making of one of these rugs.
2: I've got to give you a book to read about it. It's really hard to explain.
0: I'm not going to read to you from the book, so here's the quick version. First, a farmer shears her sheep for wool, then takes it to market. A buyer might then dye the wool using plants and vegetables and then sell that wool again to weavers. Then the weaver follows a design pattern. You've probably seen it before. Flowers and geometric shapes woven in vibrant, rich colors like burgundy and brown. A 9x12 rug might take two years to make, even with five or six people working on it just about every day.
2: Oh God, yes. If you know how much back and hand and eye and neck needs this, then you appreciate every inch of it.
0: If it's taken care of properly, these hand-woven rugs can last over a hundred years. But the care is pretty complicated too. At Ebus, they do it all by hand.
8: Hand done is probably the best method. This is how it's originally done. Now you will get a good workout, but at the same time, you'll see a major uh, major difference versus machine.
0: That's Mike Johnson. He manages the store and does a lot of that cleaning himself.
8: Come here, we dust.
0: First, he flips the rug over and vacuums to loosen the grime and dirt stuck between the fibers. This is called dusting. Then he flips it back over and takes it to what he calls the pool, where the washing happens. At Ebba's rugs, they use an olive-based soap. Its low pH helps preserve the natural landline of the wool. After this step, the rug looks lighter, more vibrant. With a wet vac, they absorb the dirt and water, and after it dries, they hose it down and scrub it with soap at least one more time, sometimes four. Finally, they hang it up to dry.
8: We stick it outside, it's a natural process of drying as well. Okay. So, you know, you get that sunshine smell.
0: But this method of washing the rugs by hand is more and more rare. Even the art of weaving the rugs by hand is disappearing.
2: Today might not take as long because they're not putting as much effort to it. They just want to produce it faster and bring it to the market, mm. the reproduction of them. And they take a lot of design out of it and a lot of colors out of it, so it's less color and less design, so it makes it faster.
0: Ebbas won't even refer to these mass-produced rugs as rugs. He calls them floor coverings.
2: Floor coverings are machine made. They go just for color, not, not the quality, not the age, and uh, it's got to work with what the furniture they have, like the very contemporary. And those are uh, the rugs that you buy, and in the next few years it's going to wear out, and you got to throw it away and buy another one. But this rock is going to last for a long, long time. And you got to always pass it down to the next generation.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm executive producer Andrea Tudhope. For this special episode, I'm taking you back through some of the best stories we brought you in 2022. All right, speaking of Nashville institutions, how about Lipstick Lounge? It's been around for a few decades, and it's one of just 21 remaining lesbian bars in the country. This is Nashville producer Rose Gilbert takes us there. It's a Friday
9: night, and the small purple bar on the corner of Woodland Street and 14th is packed. Drag queens, decked out in heels and glitter, mill around in the crowd waiting to perform. Karaoke is already going strong.
6: I think it's a pretty good vibe. I love the vibe, I love the people, I made a lot of good friends. I feel safe, I'm like with my people.
1: Strong drinks! (laughs) Oh, hell yeah. It's an awesome place just to be gay, you know, do karaoke and have fun, yeah.
9: Tonight, the main draw is a drag show. Ms. Kennedy Ann Scott is one of Lipstick Lounge's resident queens. She's been performing here for almost a decade. It is a neighborhood bar with a lot of flair. We are a bar for humans. We love everybody. We take anybody in. This is church for some people. That's right. She said church. This is a safe haven for some people. This is a fun bar, a good time, and you're never going to meet a stranger here. At this church, you worship at the altar of queens like Kennedy Ann as they dance their hearts out. And the bar's founder? She knows all about worship. I'm very spiritual, truly believe in God. John Valentine grew up the daughter of a West Virginia preacher. She was just 20 years old when she moved to Nashville in the 80s with her husband and son. After a while, they divorced, and Jonda spent a few years touring as a backup singer for country star Ronnie Millsap. Between traveling so much and coming to terms with her sexuality, she worried about losing custody.
4: You could lose your kids at that, in that period of time, especially in the South.
9: So, feeling a little lost, she came back home to Nashville and prayed to God for an answer. Soon, a little voice appeared in the back of her mind. Open a bar, open a bar, open a bar.
4: I thought, okay, God, if this is what you want me to do, then you show me a sign.
9: And then it came to her in the dead of night, a passage from her grandmother's King James Bible ringing in her mind, loud and clear.
4: Thou shalt rise up the foundations of many generations and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of past to dwelling. That section right there is what meant so much to me because bringing people together is what it's all about.
9: Years later, you can find that very passage printed on the signature purple wall over the DJ booth. Now, John did miss. Getting started was not easy.
4: We didn't know how to mix drinks,
9: you know? We didn't know what we were doing. At one point, she got so frazzled trying to keep up with drink orders that she actually forgot to ask her customers to pay. So yeah, it was kind of comical. But they made it through, and that's thanks in large part to her best friend and co-owner, Krista Supan. Our DJ booth used to actually be right
3: here. (laughs) That was it. Um, And then the bar was right here.
9: One of the first things Krista did was redesign the bar to fit her and Jonda's exact needs.
3: The guys that were here, I was like, Jonda, come here and stand next to me. So we stood side by side. And I was like, however wide our butts are together, that's how wide I want it to be. So they actually, that's exactly the size it is.
9: They quickly found their groove. Over the years, the bar became a reliable destination for a good time. But without fail, it was also a spot where the community pulled together during hard times. After the Orlando poll shooting, they raised over $10,000 in just one night.
3: We want to do something to make this world just a little bit better, and that's what we're all supposed to be doing anyway. Have you made it just a little bit better? Even if it's just the one person, have you, have you, left, it, have you left the jersey better than you found it?
9: That's exactly what Krista Hope's Lipstick Lounge does for its community. Yes, totally. Having that sort of like... You know, rainbow flag flying place that you know you can go to
1: find other people in your community is invaluable.
9: Julia Edwards has been something of a regular since she moved to Nashville just over three years ago.
1: Like having that ability to be like, okay, I'm feeling really alone and I just need to be supported by my community or I need to meet other people who are like me.
9: Not feeling alone, even in a bar full of strangers. After 19 years in business, that's what makes Lipstick Lounge so special.
4: I can honestly say that I feel like I have done more of God's work spreading love and helping people than I ever did in a church. Of the valley, my bright and morning star, I don't care what people say. I'm going down on my knees today, and I'm going to wait, wait right here until he comes.
1: <laughs> Lipstick's resident drag queen Kennedy and Scott is no stranger to This Is Nashville.
10: Hello. How are you? Good, how are you? Doing all right. Awesome.
1: Our host, Khalile Kalona, took a ride with her last spring. Every other Friday last year, Khalil hopped out of his host chair and into the passenger seat to ride shotgun with a fellow Middle Tennessean. Whether it was a Zamboni driver...
10: All right, here we go. We're getting on the Zamboni. Never thought I'd say that, but here we are.
1: Or Antioch's favorite ice cream truck driver.
10: What's the biggest seller? Strawberry chocolate, cake The Old school.
1: Ice cream sandwich. These stories are honestly so chill. There's not really a plot. There's not always an epiphany. They just make you feel like you're right there in the car with them. So here's the best shotgun ride This Is Nashville host Khalil E. Colonna took in 2022. This time, he hopped in with a cab driver on a busy Friday night to see the city and its nightlife through her eyes.
10: Are they waving? Oh,
1: no.
6: Might be waving at a... An Uber
1: and they're gonna block they're
10: the road. To the Uber with their chili fries.
4: Yeah,
6: yeah. That's one thing I don't like. Jennifer Serrano. I'm a Nashville native. And I'm a taxi driver for five years. You taking
7: somebody? No, but you, you gotta. Take me to uh, 1402 Arthur
10: Ave by Maroon Krogers. What's your name, man? I'm Alex Eaton. Alex, nice to yes, meet I'm you. Yes, I'm a man. native Nashville. Really? Yes, I was born here. I must hit the jackpot, cause I can't believe I'm in a car with two people who are born and raised. In you know Nashville. they call us uh, unicorns here in Nashville. I'm so lucky. <laughs> I, would, I would play the Powerball. I, I wish I was playing. We win the lottery. Oh my God! What would you do if you won the lottery?
8: I would get me a house in Nashville.
10: <laughs> okay. I mean, look, with and the party. housing prices out here, you pretty much have to win the lottery to be able to buy a house.
6: That's, what That's what no thinking. joke, too.
10: How long is the shift normally?
6: Typically around 12 hours.
10: 12 hours. Do you take a break though?
6: Oh, yeah. A lot of times being in the airport is a break. Mm -hmm. Take a nap in the car.
10: Take (laughs) a nap in the car. (laughs) Yeah,
6: you can if it's slow enough. I grew up in the outskirts of Nashville, yeah. What part? Jolton area. It's kind of almost country,
10: suburb. So when you were young, did you come down to downtown Nashville often?
6: Uh, yeah, once I turned 21, I sure did. hmm <laughs> But it was nothing like it is now.
3: Hello. Need a taxi?
10: What's your name, man? I'm MJ. Yes. How, how was your
3: night? Good. Good, you know, not too bad. A little dancing, a little shots.
10: Getting home safe on a Friday exactly. night out.
3: Exactly. That's why I'm with Jen. That's
10: right. Yeah.
6: What's that? Just trying to go two blocks, two blocks over. Where are you going?
10: 14th Avenue. I'm drunker than hell I'm over I'm, I'm <laughs> in Nashville for a uh, bash report. So okay,. The out of here. Well, it's
6: you like, gotta pay first.
10: He's stiffed.
6: Yeah, that's the first time that's happened to me that he's actually said. See you
10: later. Will the cops do anything?
6: It'll probably take him two hours to get out of here. So I'm just gonna have to eat it.
10: That sucks. It does. I picked
6: up two couples. So they're going back to one of their hotels. Okay. One of the ladies, she put her hand on my shoulder, said, you have to put up with so much. And then she slid her hand down. Oh,
10: wow. (laughs) She was trying to get a tip. (laughs) Yeah. Have people started their hotel exercises before they got to the hotel?
6: Some of them have tried. I tell them, okay, no clothes are coming off in this car. The trick to dealing with that is to keep them talking, and they can't start. Okay, so three in the back and two in the middle.
1: Let's
10: go around. Where are you from? What's your name and where are you from?
1: Oh, I'm Courtney. I'm from Rhode Island. I'm Agnetha, and I'm from Finland.
8: My name is Nicholas, I'm from Great Britain. My name's Marcus, and I'm from the United Kingdom.
1: I'm Jenna, I'm from South Africa. And I'm Iris, and I'm from
6: Austria. How do you guys know each other? We just
8: uh, met.
2: We,
6: That's that a funny story.
10: <laughs> Rhinestone high heel boots. OK, I can check those off my Nashville bucket list.
6: <laughs> yeah, if you like people watching, just come down here and sit for a while. You don't need to drink. <laughs> you just, just, just sit on the sidewalk. And watch.
10: What will some people do to draw your attention?
6: Most of them will wave at you or yell at you, but they don't seem to understand that they need to yell "taxi" okay. instead of "hey."
10: <laughs> you know, I blame that on rideshares.
6: Uh, yeah, yeah, me too. So you know, she's trying to find her rideshare, and I don't miss that at all. It's just impossible to give a drunk person directions. I mean, we're
10: watching (laughs) it happen in front of us. All she has to do is say, taxi. Right. Easy.
6: (laughs) Yeah. When I was a rideshare driver, you know, they had Facebook groups. You know, they would talk a lot of smack about taxis. But really, none of them knew much about taxis, if anything. I didn't either. I'd never ridden in a taxi before in my life. Okay and so i probably kind of did it too and then when i came over to this job and see how much harder it is i take it all back (laughs) i invite any of them to come and drive taxi for a year and then if you want to talk some smack you can but until you get out here and do this this job in comparison to your current job you need to have respect for taxi drivers.
1: Something that we ask ourselves when we approach a topic is how does this complicate or clarify what it means to live in Nashville right now? There's no easy or simple answer to that question but you can bet that the This Is Nashville team is on this wild ride of living in and understanding this city right alongside you. One thing we'll never do is tie a bow on a story. Every story we tell, we see as an opening, the beginning of a conversation with you. So here's to more of that in 2023. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is yours truly. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Tasha AF Lemley and Paige Flager. This is Nashville. I'm Andrea Tudhope. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody.